This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we have leadership and transitions in mind, uncertainty in Venezuela, and the future of President Hugo Chavez. And what can we expect from the new Chinese leadership when it comes to Latin America? We'll search for answers in a bit, but first, Kurt Devine is back from his holiday, and he has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Thousands of Venezuelans convened outside the presidential palace in Caracas Thursday to symbolically inaugurate Hugo Chavez. Chavez remains hospitalized in Cuba after complex cancer surgery, but Venezuela's Supreme Court ruled to legally delay his inauguration until his health improves. Opposition groups argue that Chavez should not remain president if he cannot physically take the oath of office. Vice President Nicolas Maduro spoke during the symbolic inauguration. For us, there has been and there still is only one leader. In Venezuela, we have one president, and his name is Hugo Chavez. He is the only supreme leader. Officials say 58-year-old Chavez continues to suffer from a post-surgery lung infection with respiratory complications. Colombia's Attorney General's office reopened an investigation on former President Álvaro Uribe for involvement with paramilitary groups. Imprisoned militia members accuse Uribe of previously working with a right-wing group known as the United Self-Defense Forces of Colombia. The prisoners also say Uribe ordered a killing when he was a state governor in the 1990s. Uribe served as president between 2002 and 2010 and waged war against the leftist rebel group known as the FARC. Uribe's lawyers have denied all charges. A pack of feral dogs mauled four people to death in a Mexico City park. The victims included a 26-year-old mother, her one-year-old baby, and a teenage couple. Mexico City's mayor, Miguel Angel Mancera, said the government will launch a new campaign to spay and neuter thousands of stray dogs. Authorities rounded up about 36 dogs near the scene of the attacks and asked animal rights groups to determine their guilt or innocence. Experts estimate that about 120,000 stray dogs live in Mexico City. A hacker in Brazil published the personal information of several politicians convicted of corruption in a recent trial. The hacker released the addresses, phone numbers, and emails of the politicians via Twitter and said they will have to live with the consequences of their wrongdoing. The trial, known as the Mensalo scandal, convicted the politicians of using public funds to bribe congressmen from other political parties to support their legislation. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. As we just heard in Kurt's report, the world has Hugo Chavez in mind this week. Venezuela's president remains in Cuba, battling both cancer and a respiratory infection. Presidents from Bolivia, Uruguay, and Nicaragua came to Caracas for celebrations, joining tens of thousands of Venezuelans who demonstrated in the streets. Argentina's president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, flew directly to Havana to visit Chavez and bolster his spirits. But Venezuela's opposition parties feel this is all a bit of constitutional sleight of hand. Earlier this week, we spoke to Dr. Jennifer McCoy at the Carter Center in Atlanta via Skype about the inauguration controversy in Venezuela. 
Here are excerpts from our conversation. Well, we're certainly seeing a constitutional dispute that is over the interpretation of the Constitution. And the issue is that there there is a dispute over the interpretation of some constitutional provisions that do give some indications of what to do if a president is unable to um, take office or to continue in office. But the Constitution doesn't specify every single scenario. And so this is leaving it open to interpretation. The government has one interpretation, the opposition another. So the uh, one of the issues is that the Constitution does not specify what happens with a re-elected president uh, who is unable to uh, be inaugurated or come to his inauguration date. It specifies what happens to a president-elect, assuming it's a new uh, president or a change in, in government. So the Venezuelan um, executive branch now um, and the National Assembly and um, and the Attorney General have said that with the re-election, the government simply continues in office. And it's not necessarily that one term ends and the next term begins. And therefore, the, the inaugura- inauguration date should be flexible. And it can be put off until the president is physically able to come to be inaugurated. The opposition is arguing that No, one term actually does end on January 10th. And therefore, if the president's unable to come for the January 10th inauguration, um, the National Assembly should declare a temporary absence and the president of the National Assembly should serve as interim president until the elected president is able to come or until it's determined that the elected president is uh, completely incapacitated or unable to govern, in which case there would then be new elections to elect a new president to fulfill this six-year term. So that is the situation. That's the basis of the dispute. No one is disputing that President Chavez was reelected and should come and serve if he's able uh, to do so. What they're disputing is the constitutional legal interpretation of the the end of one term, the beginning of a new term, and who should be in charge in the interim. And, and this um, temporary break, this six months of, of a possibility for Chavez to recuperate that the opposition is, is, is pushing for, is that likely to happen? Well, that's hard to say because we don't know. We haven't been given you know, the medical prognosis um, of his recovery chances. So, that's just complete speculation. Uh, there are different, you know, rumors, et cetera, uh, about the medical situation, but but we don't have the specifics. Um, if he were able to recover and come back, uh, you know, then he would come back at whatever point within. Um, there's there's a first ninety day period, which can be extendable for another ninety days. So that's why I said it could be up to six months. Uh, he could come back if they determine and uh, that there's a what they call an absolute absence or a permanent absence, that should be determined by a medical board appointed by the Supreme Court and then approved by the National Assembly. And at that point is what would trigger a new election in 30 days. And, and at this point, the Supreme Court has, has not made that, that, that step, has not taken that step. And, and so that's why there's some of this uncertainty, is, is, is it not? That's right. They've not taken the step of appointing a medical board uh, to determine the, you know, the, the health situation. 
um, of the president. The current government in place, which includes this appointed vice president, Nicolas Maduro, could simply continue in office as the vice president with Hugo Chavez continuing to be the president um, temporarily out of the country for which he did receive permission from the National Assembly to be out of the country. And that's where he's receiving treatment in Cuba. Doesn't the fact that that President Chavez not showing up for the inauguration point to the fact that he is incapacitated in in some way that that perhaps this option of six months of uh, a temporary government or or uh, or a new election um, doesn't the opposition have some argument here? Um, certainly, certainly it does. It's not entirely clear why the government opting for the the legal temporary absence uh, declaration uh, because it's it's it's. Um, it's not entirely clear what is the drawback to that that they might see, uh, other than that they're making this argument that, yes, this is the people's mandate and um, the formalism of an inauguration date is simply that of formalism. And what really matters is a government and a constitution that is based on the idea that the people have the sovereign power, as of course they do in any democracy, but it's particularly strong. Uh, here that the idea of constituent power, which is the constituents or the, the citizens can decide also when to change the rules of the game. And that would mean, you know, reforming the Constitution as well in, at some point, whenever the people decide to do that. So the role of the people as a protagonist in the political system is very important in the Venezuelan um, philosophy under the Bolivarian Revolution. And so it may be reflecting that. And another uh, theory is that it may simply be that no one, um, the people very devoted to this president, who has been a larger-than-life president, uh, has been extremely personalist president, that no one wants to actually declare that he's no longer president, even in a temporary basis. As you pointed out, Vice President Maduro was appointed by President Chavez, and so he does not have the same mandate that President Chavez has in in this particular period. So, again, the opposition is pointing out is using the term "rogue government" um, in how they're referring to um, the current situation because they feel that that even though, as you pointed out, the the people want to have some impact in how things are done in Venezuelan politics. They don't feel that he stood for the same way that those in um, in the legislative system nor President Chavez have in the recent elections. Um, yes, that's exactly right. It, it's not an elected position, uh, whereas the head of the legislature obviously was elected. President Chavez obviously was elected. Um, the Constitution does say if, if the president is incapacitated, um, during his term, at least during the first four years of his six-year term, then this appointed vice president would take over uh, to um, for a short time to until new elections should be called. If a president is incapacitated in the last two years of his term, the vice president then would fulfill the term. The confusion here, so so there is a role for the vice president under certain scenarios to take over and become president, but it's only the last two years of a term. So this is why this confusion now in the situation of it's the, it has been the last 
two months of a term uh, between the president, the election and the inauguration, when we have this president-elect, that has led to all of these various interpretations of what to do in this very specific, you know, limited time period. As you point out, the the Venezuelans, as part of the Bolivarian Revolution, really do want to have a say in how their government runs. This points to um, some vagueness in the current constitution that that maybe they'll need to fix up no matter how this health situation ends up. Uh, yes, I think I think that's certainly true. I, I know that there's no way to predict um, how things will go because of the tentative nature of President Chavez's health situation. But what do you see moving forward? Well, I think that the main, you know, the challenges for Venezuela and and for the, the government moving forward are how to, you know, if in, if in fact President Chavez is not able to come back and, and govern, is how to move forward with his movement, with his political party, um, his ideas, but without the force of his personality, which has been so strong, so influential in the country and in the region um, and beyond. Um, And particularly if there are difficult decisions to be made, which there may very well be in particularly economic decisions to be made, possibly difficult economic decisions, um, without the devotion and the loyalty that President Chavez enjoyed in, you know, of his person, his, his own person. So I think that's really the difficulty, that it's diff- very, very hard to replace such a charismatic leader. And so we may see down the road an election with multiple candidates running. Um, we may see that each side only runs one candidate. I think that the closer an election is to um, to the uh, declaration of the inability of President Chavez to return, there will be a, a large sympathy vote for um, the government. So these are all unknown questions at this point. Well, thank you, Dr. Jennifer McCoy of the Carter Center. Join us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you very much. Thank you. Also of note, with Chavez convalescing, the United States has opened up new attempts at diplomacy with Vice President Maduro and Venezuela. We'll hear more about that on next week's program. We'll be right back with the second half of this week's show. Stay with us. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week we're also looking at the transition to a new generation of leaders in China and what that means for Latin America. Chinese investment in Latin America during the past decade arguably bolstered the region during the global financial crisis. Now, with Xi Jinping leading the Chinese Communist Party, what will that mean for China's policies in the region? We turn to Margaret Myers of the Inter-American Dialogue for Answers. Here are excerpts from our pre-recorded interview conducted near the end of 2012. It's true. China is a very, very important player in Latin America, and increasingly Latin Americans 
are looking to diversify their partnerships. So moving beyond just a relationship up north with the United States and looking, you know, both to Europe, which has traditionally been a partner, but also increasingly to Asia, not only to China, but to South America, uh, excuse me, South uh, Korea, uh, Japan, and India, um, among others. So just recently, uh, China held its 18th Party Congress, and this was a process of selecting its new leadership. That at the helm of the Communist Party will have Xi Jinping as president and Li Keqiang as premier. He'll be uh, elected premier, premier in March. Um, and there's not really a sense, I, I think, both in the United States and in China and in Latin America, that this political transition is going to have much of an effect on official foreign policy toward Latin America. Um, China's official foreign policy toward Latin America is really driven by one document, and that's the 2008 policy paper on Latin America, uh, which essentially outlines various means by which China intends to engage the region. So. You have political engagement, economic engagement, cultural engagement, and um, you know various st uh, strategic and military initiatives. Um, and the sense is that this document really will continue to govern uh, China-Latin America interaction over the next few years. That said, um, the priorities of the new leadership um, will in some way influence uh, domestic policy, and there are certain things that we ought to look at in terms of domestic policy that could potentially impact China-Latin America relations as well. So it's important to look at, for example, this move toward an economic transformation uh, that China intends to, to implement over the next two years. In addition to that, uh, there's been quite a bit of talk of state-owned enterprise reform. Um, in addition to uh, state-owned enterprise reform and uh, uh, we, we also have urbanization efforts and um, industrialization efforts, which in some way could impact uh, demand for commodities from, from Latin America. So China, although it tends to be looking more domestically at, at this point, uh, those sort of domestic considerations will also play out in the China-Latin America relationship. We, we've certainly seen this search for commodities from China, but yet we're learning, because the Chinese are not always so forthcoming with statistics, that their economy has been cooling down over the past year. And that's certainly having some far-reaching effects in Latin America. Um, countries like Chile, Argentina, others who have done business with China, certainly the Venezuelans right. who would like to do more <laughs> oil business with the Chinese, must be looking that way and wondering what's happening next. That's true. There's a, there is concern in Latin America that China's growth is slowing. There's certainly been... Um, evidence of, of slowing growth, and there's, uh, you know, even concern that growth will slow to around 7% uh, in, by the end of the year. Of course, the Chinese leadership has, has announced that growth will likely slow to around 7.5% this year and then 7% by the end of the decade, so this isn't necessarily a surprise. Um, it is of concern, especially to commodities exporters like uh, Chile, Brazil, Argentina, many of the countries in, in South America. Uh, they see demand for for their products from China decreasing um, and and you know are, are fearful at least that this could be the end of the so-called China boom for for many of these countries and you know dramatic increases in revenue that they've experienced over the past few years um, and so moving forward the question is really <coughs> 
how whether or not China will be able to sustain sustain this level of demand. Um, and the, the predictions here really do vary. Um, there's a general sense that China will continue to have high levels of demand for agricultural commodities in particular. It has uh, extremely large, as we know, and then growing population um, that will need to eat no matter what. Um, and so uh, demand for food products, primarily soy, uh, but also now um, meats and, and wines from Chile and, and various fruit products, coffee, chocolate are, are all being exported in, in massive quantities to, to China. And so there's a sense that at least basic agricultural commodities will continue to um, to be exported at, at fairly high levels. Then there are questions, of course, about, uh, you know, uh, iron ore, which, which has been, demand for iron ore has been decreasing uh, quite a bit over the past year. And there's a sense that China's attempts at urbanization, at least, will sustain a, a level of demand for, for these commodities, although they may they may decrease over time. I guess that's good news for the soy producers in Brazil, but not necessarily good news to the miners in, in Chile. Right. That's exactly right. And so much of, I mean, much of this will depend on China's, as I mentioned before, domestic um, agenda, its domestic policies. If China continues to pursue rapid urbanization as it has over the past 10 or so years in an effort to sustain high levels of economic growth, then it will need much more in the way of, of copper in particular to sort of uh, f fuel this growth, and then um, you know potentially also uh, increases in in, in iron ore um, imports. But this all all remains to be seen, and and what we should find out, you know, in the next few months, what what much of this agenda will entail. I would say that although there's a sense that China Latin America relations aren't likely to change fundamentally over the next two, three, four, five years, uh, there's it's still going to be a relationship based on um, economics, essentially, the trade, uh, investment, uh, and still trade in commodities um, will, will be China's focus. But there is a sense, um, and Latin Americans even w will say this, that China is increasingly aware that it needs to do more uh, in Latin America to create sustainable long-term relationships with the region. It needs to move beyond this sort of, you know, basic trade model to invest in, in more strategic industries within the region, to invest in value-added sectors, to perhaps invest in manufacturing in order to facilitate longer-term growth in the region. Latin Americans are painfully aware that exporting commodities or primary commodities is not going to necessarily promote the long-term growth that they're hoping for. And so uh, by encouraging China to, to in fact invest in, in you know, value-added sectors within their economies, they can potentially um, you know, increase their prospects for, for, for growth in, in coming years. And China has made certain efforts to to do this. It recently met with uh, the UN Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean uh, and had a, a very important meeting wherein um, China promised, I believe it was $5 billion, uh, to support, among other things, the development of, of the manufacturing industry and a $10 billion line of credit from the Bank of China for a boost in infrastructure cooperation. So. 
there is evidence of, of this sort of commitment on the part of China, and I think that's, that's an important development and one that's very recent. Or one country that, that really sees itself building a stronger relationship with, with China in coming years is Colombia. Despite being in South America, it's a very, very much a latecomer to the, the China trade game. Um, Colombia has just recently established a series of um, memorandums of understanding with China, one of which uh, is uh, an interest in essentially starting a uh, feasibility study for a um, free trade agreement with China that will allow for more in the way of, of commercial activity. Um, Colombia has so far, in comparison at least to a lot of the other countries, its neighbors uh, and countries in the southern cone has received very little in the way of investment from China. I believe at three million uh, per year over the past 10 or 11 years. So that's very, very small by Chinese standards. Uh, but it sees itself becoming much more important to China in coming years, primarily because of uh, its coal um, and its oil, uh, which are attractive to, to Chinese uh, buyers. So this is one country in particular where I think uh, relationships might, might begin to strengthen. Thank you. Margaret Myers of the Inter-American Dialogue, join us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. Trade flows between Brazil and Mexico are hardly even a trickle today. Latin America's two economic giants have a combined output of nearly $4 trillion a year but they exchange less than $8 billion in goods and services annually. Compare that to U.S. trade of some $500 billion with Mexico and $50 billion with Brazil. Back in 2010, the Brazilian and Mexican presidents, Lula da Silva and Felipe Calderon, were right to think that they had a win-win proposition when they agreed to pursue a special economic pact. But negotiations stalled, mostly because Mexican businesses were uneasy about encouraging competition from Brazil's booming enterprises. The shifting fortunes of the two countries, however, may have improved prospects for agreement. Mexican self-confidence has risen with a notable three-year upswing of the economy. Today's vibrant Mexican markets should, in turn, have greater appeal to an economically slumping Brazil, although there are still obstacles. Brazil's first response to the slowdown has not been to embrace free trade, but instead, foolishly, to raise protectionist barriers, including a quota on Mexican auto imports. Trade will be a central topic on the agenda when Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff travels to Mexico City in March to meet her Mexican counterpart, Enrique Peña Nieto. Both leaders should be motivated by the huge potential payoff of a robust commercial agreement that opens untapped markets for the two nations. The Brazilian government is aware as well that an arrangement with Mexico also offers new access to the U.S. market, and the new Mexican administration knows that Brazil is a vital entry point to South America. And the bonus looms. A trade deal between Mexico and Brazil, which together produce almost two-thirds of Latin America's 
output could be a crucial step toward greater hemisphere-wide economic cooperation. It would break down the region's current divide into two non-overlapping economic groups. One group includes the 11 countries that have free trade agreements with the U.S. The other incorporates the seven countries that are current or prospective members of Mercosur. Significant progress toward a deeper trading relationship between Mexico and Brazil could reopen the prospect of an economically integrated hemisphere. That was an objective that was abandoned nearly a decade ago when the U.S. and Brazil could not find common ground. Peter Hakem's opinions are his own and not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to react to Latin American perspectives or any portion of this program, you may write us. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Or you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team. Associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.